Central Monday. It's Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah in the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintec.net. And yes, a lot to get to on the show, as there always is. Uh, the uh, trade never stops around the Vancouver Canucks, as we know. But a new dawn, a new era is here. The first practice in the books for the new head coach, Rick Tockett, sat. Yeah, and uh, he he did a few things that we didn't see Bruce Boudreaux do as far as the lineup goes. And the question is, is he onto something or just trying what Boudreaux didn't try because he had a reason to not try it? So those were the uh, pessimistic thoughts going through my mind watching the practice this morning. Uh, We spent a lot of time on the emergency pod sort of reacting to everything that happened yesterday. So if you'd like to hear more of those thoughts, you can check it out on the podcast page. Uh, We're going to try as much as we can, and we'll answer some texts at 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox as well. But we're going to see and sort of break down what the future looks like with Rick Tockett and the things he needs to do to really grow success. And yeah, let's start right there with some of the lineup decisions that he made because I think there is there's a couple of things that he mentioned yesterday that I I guess it um, it sort of set me up to wonder about who was going to be the players that maybe got a look higher up the lineup and immediately you see Jack Studnika with Bo Horvat and Brock Besser on the top line. Sheldon Dries playing with JT Miller and Connor Garland. Elias Pettersson, Ilya Mikheyev, and Andre Kuzmenko, they stay together. Joshua Lazar and Lockwood stay as the fourth line. And some different D pairs. No Ethan Bear at practice today. OEL Shen, Hughes Myers, Dermot Burroughs was how it set up today. And... A lot of the discussion yesterday, you heard it from Rick Tockett himself, you heard it from Alvin and, and, and Rutherford, they didn't like that they weren't seeing growth from further down the lineup. At one point, Rutherford even said, the bottom of our lineup has declined. And so this is one of the tasks that we're evaluating of Rick Tockett as this season goes on, is how does he potentially start to grow some of those players that have been playing further down the lineup and not getting much of an opportunity. Well, the player I keep thinking about based on what uh, Patrick Alvin had to say the other day that we have players on this team that can do more that just haven't been asked to do more. And the player that gets the the biggest bump up the lineup is Jack Studnika, the player they acquired giving up J- Jonathan Myrenberg. And Myrenberg is a solid prospect. I mean, was a Canucks best right-hand defenseman prospect in their system, a guy that ranked pretty high in their system overall. And somebody that, yeah, is a few years away, but considered for a team that doesn't have a ton of those future assets, at least one of those assets. So it's not like they didn't give up anything to acquire him. So I think they are invested in Jack Studnika. It's interesting to see that the coach they just hired is giving him a shot playing with Bull Horvat right off the bat and Brock Besser. And that's the guy that I'm really keying in on here, at least for the short term, until we see guys like Niels Hoaglander come back, Vasily Podkolzin come back, and maybe take those spots that we're currently seeing Jack Studnika hold and even Sheldon Dries uh, to, to a lesser extent. But Studnika, I think, is getting a real good look at it here. And these next few weeks, I think, are massive for him. Do you see a player in uh, in Studnika? I see traits. 
I don't know if I see a player yet, but I see a lot of traits that I like. I like his speed. We talk about how he has a good shot. He drives the net well. He has some you know, nice hands. He makes decent plays. I haven't seen him really put it together shift after shift to feel like, okay, here's a guy that can really drive, play, and do something for you. But I'm intrigued enough to see what he can do playing with some skilled players. And I like the idea of him getting a chance playing up top as, as opposed to guys like Curtis Lazar, who we saw take a, quite a few shifts in a top six, even a top nine role. So... I'm not sure where Studnik is going to go. I'm not trying to cop out here, but I do like a lot of the traits that I see, and I want to explore it. Like, let's explore this Jack, Jack Studnika experiment the next little while. Let's see if we can find out what he truly is. So, like, the, the way I at least envision uh, that line, you know, um, he'd probably be the F1, the guy that gets in there uh, on the four check and, and tries to win some pucks for, for Bo and, and Brock and do that sort of thing. I, you would like, I would imagine, uh, at least one, you know, one great four checker on, on every line. And maybe Jack Stanika could be that for that line. But the thing I wonder about. But I'm not sure with, he's a with, four, four checker, though. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure he's yeah. that type of guy. He's got the he, he's got speed at least mm-hmm. to get in there on the four check. Yeah, for um, sure. So you know, the, trying to think about how that line is going to work, and hey, you know, it might not be around long enough to, to yeah. really see uh, what what's going to be there because of Bo Horvat's situation and potentially even Brock Besser's. But uh, I, I guess with Stanika, you know, when I think back to some of the conversations we had when he was first acquired with some people in Boston, including one on this show, at is there a player that can penalty kill? And mm-hmm. Jack Stanika was never really afforded that opportunity with Boudreaux as coach. We heard so much from Tockett yesterday and even today that he doesn't want top guys on the penalty kill. I wonder if if that may be part of the vision for Jack Stanika here because he did it earlier in his career with Boston. Not a ton. We know he did it in the AHL for the Providence Bruins as well. So he's done it. But can he do it for the Vancouver Canucks? That's something I'm interested in. Well, who are some guys here who could be assigned some roles to see if they can handle it? And the rest of the season, in many ways, is going to be determining those factors as well. It's like, which one of these guys can do those things? Taka was very clear that they, they don't want to lean on their star players, like you mentioned, to kill penalties. So that means there will be other players in this roster tasked with that. And... You know, we'll see with Studnika, but that should be the goal for the rest of the season. Like, all of a sudden now, I'm, you know, we talked about this yesterday. Neither of us really see a massive coach bump coming up. And, you know, these next few games, at least a couple of them, are not too difficult. So if they win two out of three, wouldn't shock me. But I'm not expecting this team to have a winning record or close to it for the rest of the season. And I think part of it is there's going to be lots of experimenting going on to see... Guys trying out for roles, in-season tryouts, essentially. Like, What type of role can you play? Can you kill penalties? Can you play in this checking type of role? Can you play in an offensive role? Can we use you on the second unit power play? Can you be a good four-checker? What's your identity going to be like a player? And what type of roles can we assign you here on this squad that we can at least pencil you into for next season? See, that's what I, I find so fascinating about this right now. I know a lot of people are upset with how this all turned out. Right. And I'm not going to sit here and defend the Canucks for how they handled the Boudreaux situation and say that they couldn't have handled it any better than the way that they did. Of course, I think everybody sees that. Everybody knows that at the same time, a change needed to be made. Right. And when Boudreaux was originally brought in to be the coach of the Vancouver Canucks, it was to save last season and 
He almost did, right? We, we got to give him that. He almost did. He almost got them into the playoffs. He did everything he could to squeeze every single point yeah. out of the roster set, right? And, and utilizing his top players in every situation, penalty kill, 20-plus minutes a night, every night through the course of the season, using Demko a ton in his first full year as a clear-cut number one. And while that was all fine and well last year, the goal for this year was to build more of a sustainable style of play and a foundation, uh, so to speak, as how the Vancouver Canucks play. We never saw any of that. Are the Canucks any closer to building a contender today than they were a year ago? No. Did they take anything away from Bruce that he had last year? No. This change was necessary, not for this season, but for long term. And that's essentially what we're, we're looking at here with Rick Tockett. And that's why, like, people are saying, oh, the you're going to get another coach bump similar to what you saw from Boudreaux last year and the schedule is super easy through the end of the season. Well, the schedule is going to be the same for Boudreaux. Like, why would the logic be different that he would lose more games with this roster than Rick Tockett will be able to? Um, I think that's sort of a, a false analogy if you're going to look at it that way. The schedule is the schedule. This team has a certain amount of talent that keeps them above likely the bottom five teams in this league like they have been for this entire season so that's what this is about to me it is about building these foundations and what he can find out of this roster and how he's able to build up some of these players whether it be Jack Studnika or whomever else yeah well and you know th those are the things from an individual standpoint and, and I see people texting in and saying stuff like well all they need is to get better goaltending stay out of the penalty box and certainly they need to do a better job taking penalties and their goaltending hasn't been up to to par for sure but let's be real about how this team plays I think one of the things Sat, they're one of the least penalized teams in the league like taking fewer penalties isn't really realistic for this team yeah <laughs> but if you want to make the case maybe one more disciplined sure I mean you can always be more disciplined right like I get it you're right yeah. I mean it, it's not something that's been hindering them it's actually the fact that they can't kill penalties that that hurts them and their goaltending has been substandard for much of the season no doubt about it but these guys don't have good habits. Like, why do you think Alvin Rutherford or Alvin was talking about having the right practice habits, how you play games, and how lackluster it looks so many different times, how often they fall apart as a team? What was Taka talking about? I mean, I felt like Taka was saying a lot of the same stuff that we've been talking about in terms of mm -hmm. how this team plays. Like, how often was he... What he, how, he said some stuff the other yesterday about guys need to take shifts, shifts to live for the next shift. How many times have we talked about these guys take horrible shifts? I mean, they're long shifts. They change at inopportune times. They're not helping their next guy up to have a fair shake. And you're not helping your team have a chance to win shift after shift because each guy is dragging it on too long. And that's just one aspect of how they're playing. Then it's the bad turnovers. Then it's the not good enough forechecking, the back, bad back pressure, the not understanding what rotation that you have. I'm all for a lot of things in terms of individual performances and goaltending having to get better. But let's also be real about how this team plays and how poor their habits are. I mean, the coach was sitting here and talking about, yeah, some guys, you got to talk to them about which lane to put their sticks in. It, it boggles my mind that guys at this level on this Canucks team don't understand on the PK which lanes to keep their sticks in. So I get it. Like, you know, there are a lot of things goaltending-wise this team has to improve, and their PK has been dreadful. But from a mm -hmm. how-they-play-the-hockey-game standpoint, shift after shift and habits is deplorable. It's one of the worst in the league. The only reason they've survived is because they have high-level talent outscores their problems enough times to just be six games under 500, right? So like the reason this change happened goes well beyond 
just bad goaltending. They don't like Boudreaux. There are a lot of things this team has to clean up, and they have to change the roster significantly. But the way this team played hockey was not good enough for a National Hockey League level, especially for a team that had any sort of aspirations the next couple of years. Yeah, with the talent level that they have, they've severely underperformed their talent level. Everybody knows that. Um, <laughs> this text, I'm going to miss river hockey. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, kind of what uh, Rick Tockett's been calling it. Not that he's uh, taking shots at the old coaching staff, but he's just said, uh, you can't win with river hockey, is uh, one quote we've heard on uh, yesterday, and yes, and we also heard it today. But he mm-hmm. talked about you know, wanting to have some rules, rules that this team is going to live by and how they play and what they expect out of their players. You know, I'm sure every coach has some level of this, but I, I remember talking to an ex-coach in the league when, when Boudreaux was first hired, and he basically said, Boudreaux's thing is, go out there and make a hockey play. And, and uh, okay, I, I didn't know what a ton to make about that at first, but... You know, now I kind of see the casualness in in mm-hmm. in sort of that level of coaching style, and and I don't, I'm not trying to say this to to bring down Bruce. I mean, his record speaks for himself, what he's done in this league. But I think you know, you also have to see that his reputation has taken a hit over the last couple of years around the league, and it took him a while to get back, even though he had one of the greatest regular season records that this league has ever seen as a head coach. So. This team desperately needs that structure. And Tockett's the guy they've identified to be able to bring it in. We all question of how it's going to work, but that is the basic foundation of what this is about. It's not about the rest of this year. It's about next year and the year after that. I know he's only got the contract for two more years, mm-hmm. but we've talked about this in the past. That if you build out a program, if you build out a style of play, Maybe it doesn't increase your results at the ceiling because ultimately that will be determined by your true talent level, but you can increase your floor. Your floor can be more consistent, which we have not seen here in Vancouver over the last couple of seasons, right? Sometimes there's highs, then there's crazy low lows. They're, They're wildly different ways that this team can perform, which isn't a way of sustainable winning. And also, it makes it very difficult to really identify what you have, but also it makes it harder to target and acquire players to fit the roles and upgrade positions on your roster when you play like that. And I think that's one of the issues you have to sort of solve here as well. When you think of Carolina, Boston, the top teams in the league, you know they know exactly what type of player, what type of profile they are looking for when they go out and try to find a player to fit into their team. And I I don't know if we've had that or we've seen that, I should say, in Vancouver the last couple of years. I think that's part of the goal about getting in a system and a foundation. And that's what they think they've got with Rick Tockett. Well, and, you know, and it's funny because I see the text messages here as well. Um, The one that I love, too, is we're talking about things that have to improve. It's like, oh, yeah, your old boss is giving you talking points, as in C-Mac. Yeah, C-Mac's been sending us talking points here, so we're just reading <laughs> off the off the email that he's been sending us. I mean, I... I, I, I just for last Vancouver is coming around pretty soon. Yeah, so uh, we'll see. Might as well sign up. Yeah, uh, and then uh, this text says, explain to me how... Uh, how a record of 44% winning percentage over six years uh, is going to help with structure. Everything is getting completely conflated together, right? Like none of us agree that the way things were handled with Boudreaux was right. We agree that you should have let him even stay to the end of the year, let it completely tank. 
But what is the reason they're doing this? And is there any justification for trying to fix the way they were playing hockey? I don't care what you want to see. If you're a hockey fan that understands the game, you can't watch this Canucks team and say, oh, the way they're playing is fine. Like, that's the way a team should be playing in the future. It's not. If you are thinking about changing things long term, and I even made the case, we made the case, hire talk of the last 10 games, hire him next season, make this foundational, you know, uh, search or try to establish your foundation next season. But now you've done it. So how do you move forward? How do you make this work? But their foundation has to have an identity. Like we have to know what Canucks hockey looks like before you even start putting the rest of your team together and before you really figure out yeah. where you're going in terms of how ready you are, who is our coach, who's establishing what we're all about, and how do we get there and how do we put the pieces together? Heck, next season, they may not even make the playoffs, but you start putting those pieces together to get closer to being a good hockey team. They got to make a ton of trades, they have to make a ton of tough decisions. We talk about Bo Horvat, they have a lot of work they have to do in front of them. But let's not pretend that they don't need to have a proper structure and a coach they're aligned with and they believe in. I hope this is the right hire. If it's not, here here we go spinning our wheels again. But a part of having success long-term and establishing a foundation of who you are is the coach behind the bench, the type of hockey you play, and the identity you have and the expectation you have on a day-to-day basis. That was lacking here in Vancouver. And it's not all Boudreaux's fault because management didn't give them a, a good enough environment to have success in. They didn't back him. All those things are true. But regardless of why they got to the point they're in, they need to have alignment with their new head coach. They need to play a lot better as a team. They have to start establishing what it's like to what Canucks hockey looks like. And that's something they haven't done for years. And be consistent with that. Because I think one of the critiques I had of the previous regime with, with Travis and Jim, it seemed like they wanted to change the way they played <laughs> uh, every single year and, and drastically change it at, at times. Uh, and they changed the types of players that they wanted to go after and get. They wanted fast and skill. They wanted, uh, you know, to be harder and have more sandpaper Then they wanted more girth. You know, it's just like, uh, can, can we stick to one plan and, and really try to see that plan out? Because you can't do everything in one off season. That is unrealistic. So when we think about those things, I think that's why we've gotten to this point and that's essentially what the plan is or part of the plan that Patrick Alvine and Jim Rutherford sort of outlaid for us yesterday but what else is is Tockett um, really inclined to do here through the rest of the season do you think you'll have more of a focus on Elias Pettersson or JT Miller Sat? so the entire conversation is around JT Miller Right. And I get it. I mean, you heard what Talkit had to say about the type of habits you need to see, the type of body language you need to see, and pacing himself and all that. And totally, like, I, I see it. It's important getting him completely to the level he needs to be at and, and having somebody steer him in the right direction is important. But the most important thing that Rick Talkit can do is establish something as a coach that's going to that's gonna have the best player on your team buying in. And I think part of getting this in, I, I understand that the JT Miller stuff, I still look at all this and I look at Elias Patterson and I say, he's a player who plays the right way. He's a player who does follow those rules inherently with how he plays. And I think having somebody that's going to preach a lot of the same stuff that he's all about as a player is really going to resonate with him. And Patterson's going to be su- supremely low maintenance as long as he plays his game. And we heard this about the Twins, that AV never had to worry about them because they knew exactly what to expect. knew exactly what to expect from them. They showed up every day and worked hard. And he had no worries about managing anything with the Sidians. 
And I think that's going to be a lot of what happens with Pedersen. But having a coach and a that's going to be aligned with him in terms of expectations and that's going to be able to leave him alone in that way and challenge him at the right time, I think is going to be a real integral part of keeping him here long term. So I actually think the player they're impressed, they're trying to impress the most or trying to get on board the most. And maybe the guy they're trying to teach the most might be JT. But I think the guy they're most focused in on with this hire is Elias Patterson. It's it's part of the contract situation too, right? You've got to sell Pedersen. I mean, he's it's sort of a big card to play here in the lead up to contract negotiations because you are selling to Pedersen what the future looks like. And this is something that he needs to buy into in order to say yes to an 80 plus million dollar contract this summer. Now, maybe it just comes down to the money and he sees enough talent around him here in Vancouver, believes in himself that he has the ability to lead a team to to a certain level of success. I think all of those things could be true as well and he signs a contract no matter what. It's really hard to turn away 85 million big ones when when it's sitting there on a table in front of you, mm-hmm. but part of this process is about selling Tockett and a future for the Vancouver Canucks to their biggest star player. They're one untouchable. Well, and, and also, like, I don't think Pedersen is the type of guy you have to sell. I think it's more about the actions. You know, like, he, I don't think he's the type of player that it's like, okay, let me be friends with him and, you know, let me get him on board. I'll give him all the ice time he wants and he's going to be happy here because, you know, I'm patting him on the back all the time. I he's think, smarter than that. Yeah, and I think guys like that, what they want to see is, like, do you know what you're doing? Right. And like, are we going to start playing the right way? And if that, and those are the things that he can establish. I mean, they hired Rick Tockett for this team to play the way they envision and in many ways is play the right way. And I've been sounding like an old hockey guy more and more every year. And this team has been driving me crazy all year long. It drove me crazy during training camp. And I wasn't even on the fire Boudreaux train, but it's like, for all this talk about improving your structure, improving how you're playing, you guys are showing zero inclination that you're doing any of that stuff through training camp nor in the preseason, right? It was very, very clear that the things they were asking of this team, they were not exhibiting very early on. So these things have been driving me crazy. So they're hiring somebody in their estimation that's going to establish those things. If he can, then I think it's a home run with Elias Patterson. But if Rick Tockett is going to not have success, right? If the players don't buy in and if he's the wrong guy for the job because he's not the guy for today's NHL and there's some questions, right? You look at how he's coached in the past. He talks about how the skill has really evolved, but at the same time, game management hasn't gotten to that level. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of how he's describing it. But also how much of that is can we game manage the way you want to? And are you missing how the game's being played to some degree? So I don't think there's a guarantee here that Rick Tockett, who doesn't have this great track record as a head coach, is going to come in and have a lot of success. But in terms of the things they've said, the things he said, what their focus is, I understand what they're trying to do. And if they if they do hit on those things and, and Tockett's able to get this team to play the right way, I think that's going to be the most impressive thing or the most important factor for Elias Pettersson when he looks at the head coach. I do think there's a big part in this uh, for, for JT as well. And uh, Rick Tockett was asked about it today. Uh, says he's already had a conversation with JT, and JT was already open and honest about what things he wants to work on as a player and, and where he wants to get better. And Tockett just said, I want to get him back to being a player that can, can take over games. Uh, we haven't seen that uh, this year, as we all know. So it's obvious that there's a big part in this for JT and he gets moved back to center immediately by the new coach. 
And maybe it's a preparation because JT might have to play center for the rest of the year should they move on from Bo Horvat. But I thought that was sort of telling that Tockett wants to move JT right back to center and see if he can get him playing in that more structured style that they keep talking about. Yeah, and when I look at JT's game, it's not that he can't play that style and be successful. It comes down to mostly decision-making for him, the way he he drags his shifts on and the body language stuff that you see. And we saw him here, was it uh, the first year in Vancouver, and especially in that postseason, the Canucks played a pretty structured game. I mean, they essentially played shut it down hockey and, and crash in front of the goaltender and keep things to the outside. And they did a good job of it in the postseason. And I saw JT be able to have success playing that style. Now, the difference was he was doing that as a winger, not as a center. And there's so much more defensive responsibility for you playing down the middle. And the fact that we're seeing JT play center right away here with Rick Tockett, I think it's interesting to see. I think Rick is trying to figure out, like, can he actually play this? And can I get a more responsible player that can still provide offense? Or or do we actually have to play him on the wing here? So I think a lot of what Rick is trying to Rick Talk is trying to figure out here with JT Miller is wh- where can I get him to be his best? And are we almost trying to put a you know a square peg in a round hole when we're trying to get him to be a certain type of player? Because I know you've remarked about how oftentimes this year he's tried to be in the right spot, but he's not generating offense and he seems a little confused at times. It's almost like he's he's overcompensating and then not doing anything of value on the ice half the time. And maybe part of that the structure or and part of simplifying things is getting him him to play more freely but at the same time manage the puck a lot better and I think it, it sounds like you know a juxtaposition a little bit right you talk about well you need to play more freely but at the same time you need to be more responsible when you're overcompensating overthinking about what you're trying to do it's not natural and I think those are the types of things they have to get away from it, over the larger sample his defense wasn't an issue this year when he's played center it's um it's mostly been that they can't generate any offense when JT's played center. How do you get a mix of both where he's solid defensively and bringing you the offense that you need out of a player like JT Miller? Last year when he played center, he played free. You know, it felt like he just played on instinct, which is what you love, but he played with a confidence and an assuredness that I don't think we've seen when he's played center so far this year. So we'll see if that's able to develop as well. Frank Saravalli is going to join us. Uh, We'll get his take on how these last couple of days have played out in Vancouver. And later on, Don Taylor will join us. Plus, um, look like Sergei Gonchar was taking Quinn Hughes under his wing already as uh, his new role with the Vancouver Canucks started today as well. We'll get to all of that. It's still to come on Canucks Central. Dan Richo, Satyar Shah, Canuck Central coming to you from the Kintech studio. You can always get in touch with the show. 650-650 Dunbar Lumber is the text inbox. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, on Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And a lot of reaction coming in at the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Brandon in Vancouver, I'm curious how Kuzmenko does under Rick Tockett. Uh, we've seen a lot of offense out of Kuzmenko. That's uh, an interesting thought there from Brandon. There's, you know, we'll, we'll see if the offense keeps up as uh, they start to go through some of these uh, maybe 
growing pain sat mm-hmm. in these first little bit with Rick Tockett as coach? Yeah, I, I mean, the interesting thing is going to be how he gets utilized on the power play. And right off the bat, we're seeing him play with Mikheyev and Elias Pettersson. So from a five-on-five perspective, he's getting that featured ice time right away. But do we see him actually on the first unit power play? And uh, what happens if he makes a mistake or two or blows an assignment or two? Uh, Let's bring in our next guest. He joins us every Monday here on uh, Canuck Central. It is uh, Frank Saravalli. Find his work at Daily Faceoff. Thanks for this, Frank. Um, How's it been watching the uh, the circus in Vancouver the last couple days? Uh, I depleted my popcorn supply like three times already, guys. What else you got? (laughs) Yeah, what's next, right? Uh, It's been uh, a situation that that hasn't uh, really ended (laughs) any. I, I guess, you know, a lot of Canucks fans need uh, a lot of convincing now, but uh, just to sort of look back on it uh, one final time with you, um, what did you make of the Canucks um, making that change, how they announced it yesterday, and um, your take on why now they made the change? Yeah, I think why now is the really interesting question because when you hear the criticisms that have been levied against Bruce Boudreau really from the beginning of his tenure. And, and frankly, um, I think it goes back to not long after Patrick Alvin arrived in Vancouver and began really watching closely uh, with Jim Rutherford as to, we've talked about this a million times, practice and structure and all these different buzzwords that, you know, they talked about in Sunday's press conference. Like none of that is new. And this sort of regression that he he spoke of between the bottom six and the Canucks lineup, that's kind of been all season two. And so I think what's really interesting is what was the impetus to try and make this change now? Because if you're on team tank and you really think that the Canucks should bottom out and you know, get the best draft pick possible in this upcoming draft, well, then you might have been wise to keep Bruce Boudreaux. And if your thought process is, well, you can install a new coach and have him finish out the year, and then your team will be ready to hit the ground running next year, I would think that's a really wise formula for a team that's trying to retool for next season The only problem is there's going to be so many of the guys that are currently here on this roster that won't be there come September and October, at least if the Canucks are doing it like they say they want to. So then you're left saying, well, A, why now? And B, why did it have to be done this way? And I think that's what's gotten everyone worked up is just the manner in which it all unfolded. You know, you can come up with a lot of words for it, embarrassing or whatever, I would just say unnecessary. Yeah. Well, I mean, the entire thing was, I mean, even if you want to make the case that, okay, like they mentioned, hey, we don't want media to dictate what's going on. But you see this in, in the business world as well. When something leaks and gets out, you're forced to address it. You can't just wait for your date because now it's out there and now it's affecting your brand. It's affecting you know, how people view your consumer confidence, plays a part in the PR. And I think if they would have a do-over, no matter what they say, I'm sure they would have done it differently or at least you know, brought an interim guy in or kept, especially Yo being here, there's no excuse. Just have him coach one or two games, move on. You deal with not as, bitch, as big of a headache. I'm sure there'll still be criticism because people love Boudreaux, but not the same type of criticism. But in terms of how the organization is being viewed, Rutherford's been taking a lot of shots, right? So has the entire front office. But 
how, how, what's the sense around the ownership group here around the league with how things have gone? I mean, to me, you can be critical all you want of Jim Rutherford, and I think part of that's fair. I think his messaging, while I appreciate the honesty, um, was really pointed right from Jump Street, and we've been talking about that since October, um, and he apologized for that. And so um, I understand that part of it, but I still think every part of this and the fiasco and circus that it became, and frankly, a lot of what we've seen over the last decade plus as this team has chased its tail time and time again, I think it starts and ends with ownership. I think everything flows downhill. Um, that's the way pro sports work. Everyone operates on a mission and mandate. And as much as Jim Rutherford is the boss and Patrick Alvine is what, however you want to view it, either his equal or his deputy, um, there's a spot where they're still accountable to the person that's signing their checks. And in this case, whether it's calling it a retool, whether it's the messaging that I think has been fumbled in the last 24 hours with regards to that and um, the quick fix, and we can get into all that as well. To me, this Canucks front office group has known since very early in October that they wanted to make a coaching change and were ready to make a coaching change. And I reiterated this this morning and I don't care what anyone else tries to spin it. I, I have it on crystal clear authority that they were not permitted to make the coaching change when they wanted to. And it's only until recently, whether it's the start of the new year or what have you, I don't know the exact date and time that they were then given the green light to finally make a coaching change. And I, I still don't know why that is. And then this is how it played out. And so it's lingered for a long time since then that this is everyone's known that this was the outcome. It was a matter of, is he going to be able to survive the year or not? And I don't know what happened. You heard Jim Rutherford begin to explain part of it as to why it became sort of so pressing and so toxic to do it now. Yeah. It, it I mean, it, it became a situation that was no longer tenable. Right. And you know, I don't know ownership's level of, um, influence on this to be quite honest but i like thinking about how rutherford has sort of talked about it over the course of the year you know um when he said and made it very clear that on after hours months ago that he didn't know that uh, boudreaux's option was an automatic kick-in right for this year so that was a bit of an unknown to him when he came into the job but you know, when you think about ownership and their level of influence on this how many owners go Boudreaux out and hire a coach Right. Like that's, that's the, that's where this all started. Right. Frank, like he hired Boudreaux before hiring Rutherford. Now, how much of a blessing was there from Rutherford? I guess that's, that's definitely up for debate, but when you do it that way and it's backwards and it's very obvious that, you know, the coach and management is not aligned as it was once the season ended last year. I mean, we, we were sort of bound for this situation to get ugly the way that maybe not to the level that it has, but I think we were bound to this uh, not ending in a happy, happy ending. When they, when they had a stare down this summer, the game of chicken that they played with Bruce Boudreaux's contract, which was take the option or are you going to walk or whatever it is, that was when this was bound to blow up, that there was bad blood then and they already didn't like what they saw 
in terms of structure and practice last year, that there's no way that unless this team got off to a great start and was playing, you know, 650 or playoff level hockey, that they, that things would be copacetic. There's, they're just, it was bubbling under the surface right from the very beginning. And I, I don't look, it's always difficult to pinpoint the ownership's involvement in anything. And frankly, it's their right to run their business as they see fit. And I don't know where the meeting with Rick Tockett took place specifically, but I've heard the reports. How often have you heard of an owner traveling with your president of hockey ops and or GM to go interview a head coaching candidate? Usually if that happens, it it happens, you know, they, they do meet and give the final blessing and, hey, you know, really great to meet you and get to understand you and know you. But the level with which his involvement has been there from the very start, and I'm talking about Francesco Aquilini, and it's not just this coach, but every GM and coach that's been involved over the last decade plus, it's heavy and way heavier than almost any other organization. And like I said, you can run your business as you see fit. The really successful franchises in, in the NHL um, don't have ownership involved in hockey ops decisions at that level. That's nothing new here in Vancouver, though. I mean, Boudreaux, no, I mean, even I'm, the Boudreaux, I'm not breaking any news when I say that. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it, it, Boudreaux himself spoke at length, and the Canucks didn't have a president at the time and a GM at the time when he went and hired Boudreaux, and we've heard in other times when he's been involved in meetings, of course, and, and involved in decisions on the head coach, even going back to Tortorella. So I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, where else do you see it? I think we've we've grown accustomed to seeing that here in Vancouver over the years. Now, uh, the big the big story now remaining unresolved for Vancouver is now on the ice. They took care of the coach. We'll see if that's the right coach or not. What ultimate decision do they make on Bull Horvat? And I guess until he gets traded, there's always a, a chance they do end up signing him to a contract extension. But as we sit here today, January 23rd, six weeks away from the trade deadline, uh, how do you see the Bull Horvat situation as it stands? I see nothing new. I mean... Do you have to allow for the possibility that the Canucks make a last-ditch play and that they sort of give him this runway under Rick Tockett to get to know him and, and get a sense of, of how things may turn and be different? Of course. Um, I think everyone connected to Bo Horvat, Bo Horvat himself, his teammates, everyone expects this to, to end in one way and one way only, and that's with a trade. Um when that will be, I don't have a sense, even though we've all reported that talks have intensified over the last week, that anything is imminent as of today. Um, I wouldn't be shocked to see a trade materialize before the All-Star break next week, but I also wouldn't be surprised at all to see it you know, go toward the March 3rd trade deadline itself, 39 days from now. So you know, they're in a spot where they feel like, as Jim Rutherford mentioned, they don't want to pay a premium based on this magical season that he's had and, you know, let the stats and, and records show that he has sort of quieted down a little bit or cooled off one goal in his last seven games. But it's it's been a magical contract year, and the Canucks view him as, hey, we've had this player in our organization that we know really well that we think we're right on our valuation of him 
regardless of what the market says. And um, I think that's how it's going to end. It's, um, you know, he, he is the number one player on the market. Maybe uh, Dylan Larkin becomes available as that situation still lingers in, in, in Detroit. But the Canucks seem to be pretty steadfast on not wanting teams to, to speak to Bo Horvat. Is, is that the right move uh, in, in your estimation if they want to maximize their return? I mean, look, I don't want to – I'm not going to accuse anyone of tampering by any stretch of the imagination, but there are always calls that are made to agents about other players on other teams that happen to circle back at some point in the conversation. Oh, hey, what's going on with Bo? Or what's going on with this guy? And so they may not grant the permission. And in, frank, in, in, in fairness, I, I would say they're wise not to. I would say you hold that card if you can and try and extract that value out at the last minute. Hey, what happens if we can provide you some cost certainty before you even pull the trigger on this deal? What more would you be willing to give us in that case if there is no sort of wink-wink conversation going on? But here's the thing. Bo Horvat holds all really – not all the cards, but a lot of the cards, because if some team is dead set on only acquiring Bo Horvat, if they're eventually going to be able to work out a deal, well, word travels fast. Information's like air in, in the hockey world. Good luck trying to contain it um, because it seeps out from every crack and crevice. Mm-hmm. And if there are a number of teams involved and Bo Horvat doesn't like a few of them, or that's not his preferred destination or whatever the case may be, all he has to do is, is speak his mind and poof that, that vanishes. So um, he, he really wields a lot of power here um, in this whole process. I call it the de facto, no trade clause. Yeah, I mean, it is essentially, and for any team that's well, that wants him, but also wants to sign him to an extension, that's essentially how this all works out. Now, we'll see how this all unfolds. Like you said, I think the the rest of this week is going to be interesting, and then the Canucks go into their bye week, and and we head into the All Star break coming up in a bit. But the other guy that is most likely going to get traded here is Luke Shen. When we look at his situation and the market around him. I think it's one of those things that if they want to move him today, they can. But is his market going to get the most heated as teams start figuring out who they who they can and can't go after closer to the deadline? It shouldn't. I mean, essentially, whatever you think Luke Shen is and whatever you size up the rest of the market to be, like it shouldn't be drastically changing between now and March 3rd. And I think... Um, the Canucks are in a spot where they could pull the trigger today. I don't know what waiting will do for them. I, I don't, I don't see it becoming a bidding war if that makes any sense. Like not mm-hmm. to say there's not interest there is, but there's only a certain price I would think that someone's willing to pay. And at some point you're just sitting on your hands. I just think right now he hasn't been front burner in this exact moment in time because First, they were dealing with the Tockett and Boudreaux situation. Then they were fielding calls on Horvat. And then the next thing is is Shannon, whatever happens next. And also, probably on the other side of the All-Star break, negotiating with Kuzmenko. Is, uh, is Brock Besser movable before the deadline? I think he is. I mean, 
I understand the contract and the term. I've talked to a number of people around the league, and their answer is that he's, at, they think right now, about a million dollars north of where he should be. It depresses the asset return, meaning what you might be able to get back. And I think the reports about the Horvat, you know, package and what they're seeking are fascinating because, well, they're fascinating on a number of levels. We know that they're looking for players. They've said it. But also, if there's no pick capital coming back the other way, well, I what I think it does is it ratchets up the pressure on the Canucks. Because if you really are trying to aggressively retool this and, and turn this team into a playoff team in the next year or two, that means you basically have to bat a 1,000 mm-hmm. in your trades. You need to nail every single one. And you need to nail every piece of it. You can't have you know, one third of whatever package you get back for Bo Horvat not work out. And so I think that increases the pressure. Um, and then when you're talking about someone like Besser, you know, maybe you, you work out a blend. Is it a second round pick that comes back for Besser? Uh, is it, uh, you know, some other younger player that just kind of hasn't worked out, maybe even with a contract that's imperfect and you're able to saw off uh, part of that cap hit instead of necessarily uh, retaining or, or taking the lesser asset. There's a number of ways to view it, but I would imagine that there is enough interest in, Bo, in, in Brock Besser, excuse me, to be in a spot where they can really begin to get flexibility mm-hmm. and reshape this team. Well, it seems like if they're if they are making a Brock Besser type of deal, it, it would have to be some sort of a loss somewhere, whether that's in the return or whether that's in some sort of retention or taking some sort of money back. And I wonder mm-hmm. if they bite the bullet on that, if if and only if they find a deal perhaps with Bo Horvat and they think they can make a deal with Kuzmenko. Now, that's like door number four of possibilities, and I don't think it's a realistic one, but I do think it is within the range of possibilities here that they do keep Horvat and Kuzmenko and move somebody else out. But for that to happen, they would have to first agree to a number with Bo. And, and I just wonder, not reporting, but I wonder, Frank, if if they p- pursue the, the Besser thing a bit more, if and only if they think they can actually get both those guys signed. Maybe. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate with you here. And I just did a full breakdown on Kuzmenko and his contract and what that might look like. Mm-hmm. Even with a team that's trying to retool, does Kuzmenko make any sense to keep? I mean, I think it's a very fair question to ask, right? Like, I think if you're looking at retooling, can you get a draft pick? Can you move this forward? I think there's an absolute reason for it. But I just get the sense, Frank, that they really want to keep him. I, I, I think we all get that sense. I'm just wondering if it's why. Mm-hmm. Because he already doesn't... Like, let's just take it at face value, what, what they said with, we want players 25 and under, 26 and under. Like, he's turning 27, hitting free agency... If you believe in the age curve and and all that, like theoretically his best days, even though he's a rookie, may already be behind him. And I I just think when you look at the Canucks and their cap issues that they're dealing with, I, I think every team in this league has at one point or another run into a problem where they're paying for quality production from players that are not drivers and are really nice secondary complementary pieces. And depending on how you structure your cap, 
I think that could make sense. But I think you have to take a 30,000-foot view here and look five years down the line with, you know, who are you keeping and who are you, who are you waving goodbye to? What does the next Pedersen contract look like? Obviously, Hughes is, is tied up for a bit. Where do, what are you targeting in terms of buyouts? Um, and then go from there because I think the last thing you want is to saddle yourself with another player who's not driving the bus for your team that is collecting a pretty big salary that hams up your cap. Frank, you're the best. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for this. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Uh, there is Frank Saravalli. Yeah, uh, joining us here on Canuck Central. Always great insight uh, with Frank. And I just find that interesting because, I mean, there's a sense that you can move Besser, right? But I don't think it's yeah. a deal that makes you, like, you... You might have to plug your nose and do it. It gives you some flexibility. Do you have a better opportunity the offseason, right? And that's what, what I just wonder about. You know, like, if that's something they have in their back pocket they don't want to do, but they'll do if they feel like there is a, 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 a gap they can bridge with Bull Horvat. Again, uh, all you have to do is take a quick glance at uh, cap friendly. Uh, and I know, you know, a lot of those situations, the, the amount of cap space there isn't maybe as exact as uh, as it might be within those uh, those front offices around the National Hockey League. But it gives you at least a ballpark of just how little cap space there is around the league. So to move a contract like Bo Horvath, uh, like Brock Besser's. Uh, with some term on it, it's uh, it's not easy to do in season. Uh, we'll uh, keep this going. We saw Sergey Gonchar take Quinn Hughes under his wing. Um, is that a big part of the future here in Vancouver? Can he uh, get Hughes to another level? We'll discuss that and more next on Canuck Central.